Hello and welcome to On Geopolitics, the podcast which looks at geopolitical issues in a historical context, brought to you by the Centre for Geopolitics at Cambridge University, with me, Suzanne Rain, and Ali Ansari, my comrade in arms. Is that what comrade in arms? That's that what we call that's, ourselves. That's, yeah, that's what. Um, we're... And today, Ali and I are on our own, and we are taking as our task the quite significant question: Is Russia European at all? And that obviously has has come out of the debate which we've been having, particularly in Europe, about the role that Russia plays in Europe. And Ali and I, obviously, as as you know, Ali is is an expert on on Iran and Persian history, and actually a sort of Central Asian Mongolian history. And the two of us just thought, there's a whole other side to Russia. Russia is enormous, and let's really understand all the other bits of Russia. We might not manage this. In we might not minutes. make it in we 40 minutes, <laughs> but it's, maybe, not, it's not a small task. Maybe this is the start of many. Yes. Also, this is a podcast, uh, not a slideshow, but I'm going to start with a map yeah. of modern Russia. I'm just going to talk it through because it's it's not a given that everybody understands exactly how how big and, and where Russia is. So I'm going to try and describe I mean, it. it is, yeah, it is difficult to know um, the size of this place, isn't it? And it, that's important. Yeah, well, so Russia is the largest country in the world. It's nearly twice the size of the second largest country, which is, Ali, try and guess. God, I would have thought it's, I'm going to say Canada, actually. I'm False right, on. aren't I? Yeah, you are right. Yes, yes. I was um, going to say the US, but it is Canada. No, it's think, Canada, yeah. then China, and then the US, but China and the US are neck and neck. But I can't believe it's twice the size. Well, you're going to have to be nearly, Crikey. actually wow. nearly twice the size. Wow. Russia is 11.52% of the Earth's area. Canada is 6.73. So it's not quite twice, but, yeah, it, but, but it's it still pretty is. impressive, isn't it? Yeah. And techni- so, so surface, surface area of Russia is 17 million square kilometres. Cool. And Canada is nearly 10 million square kilometres. So it's huge. Yeah. And obviously only a tiny fraction of that is, is the Western... Yeah, that's right. Land border, European Russia. That European sense. Russia. And technically, Russia is the largest country in both Europe and Asia, because it's the largest country in the world. So it's that's the right. largest country in every continent. But then it's quite interesting to say, well, you know, is Russia European or is Russia Asian? Mm. And, and what people tend to say is that Russia is European in terms of culture and population, meaning China is the largest country in Asia. Yeah, I see. But actually, of course, Russia is the largest country in Asia because the significant portion of Russia is Asian. So looking at this map, which nobody can see, but I can see, if you, if you take Russia sort of sitting right in the middle of, of the rectangle, you can see that the, the entire northern border is sea. Yeah. And that the famous bit of the sea is the Barents Sea and the Arctic Sea, Arctic mm-hmm. Ocean. And then you've got a lot of sort of smaller seas, which are in these bays across the top of Russia. Mm-hmm. So the Kara Sea, the Laptev Sea, seas we've probably not heard very Never much heard about, of, Never heard say. of yeah. at all. Then you've got the Western border, which is Finland and Latvia and Estonia. And then coming down, and this is where it all gets a little bit complicated, you've then got Belarus, Ukraine, mm-hmm. Georgia, and Azerbaijan, yeah, not Armenia, not Armenia. That's this is a really complicated bit going around the left hand side, the, the western side, and that first bit of the southern side. Then 
you've got this incredibly long boundary on the mm. on the south, which is currently the border is Kazakhstan, tiny little bit of China, right? Mongolia, huge length of border with China, yeah, and then. You know the answer to this. I know. But it was a surprise. But it was to a me. surprise. And to me, I have to say. North Korea. I know. That but it's that was a surprise. Uh, so Russia has a border with North Korea at the far, far east eastern shore. shore. Tiny, tiny border, about 17 kilometers. And then obviously the entire east coast is various bits of the Pacific Ocean, which have different names, but but border against Japan, and then head off towards Alaska. So that's the shape of Russia as it is today. today. Obviously, Ali, as you well know, it didn't used to look like that at all no. when it was the USSR or indeed when it was Imperial Russia, which I know we're going to come on yeah, talk yeah. about first. But but one of the things that's probably so interesting that's creating all these stresses and strains now is that is that those borders were completely different when Russia was the Soviet Union. Mm-hmm. Because Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, Belarus... Ukraine, Mm -hmm. Kazakhstan, Georgia, Armenia, Azerbaijan, Uzbekistan, Turkmenistan, uh, Tajikistan and Kyrgyzstan were all part of the Soviet Union. And that's where I think we might start talking about it, Ali, because that meant at that time that Russia had two land borders with Iran, with Persia, both through... um, Turkmenistan and then in the Caucasus. Yeah. But you also, one thing we missed there, of course, is it does have this outpost in what is now Kaliningrad, it which means does. it does border onto Poland, doesn't it? It does. Yeah. It does. And so that's got a slightly, um, a slightly odd configuration there. And that was obviously former Königsberg, so that's part right. of East Prussia, which is a really odd little enclave yeah. now that feels stuck in, <laughs> stuck in everything, stuck geographically, stuck in time, stuck... I mean, it, may, it makes you wonder why they're so paranoid about being surrounded, isn't it? Because they're so vast. I mean, obviously they are, you know, it, it always for me a great paradox of the Russians is they feel this sort of paranoia about being surrounded. And yet being the, the largest country in the yeah. world, it's quite difficult really, isn't it? I mean, you're how, how, how big do you want to be? So, Ali, I mean, because this is this yeah. is not about history, but there's yeah. so much history in it. There and is the, history in it, the yeah. The bit that I found really, really hard to put piece together, and I know that this, mm. <laughs> this is not straightforward, is Russian expansion. So, basically, you had the Novogradians and the yeah. Muscovites uh, originally, and they were they were basically in sort of modern Western Russia, mm-hmm. and they expanded eastwards really under sort of between Ivan the Terrible and Peter the Great more or less um and the empire that they expanded into was was the remains of the Mongol empire is that I mean basically you know so I mean basically there are two sort of like origin stories really for the Russians I mean one is obviously the great sort of antique history in a sense of you know the Vikings coming down and setting up Rus and so on and so forth but I mean more interesting for us and for the question that we've sort of set ourselves is this notion that they define themselves very much against the Eurasian steppe and basically the Mongols. And the critical people, I mean, group of Mongols they define themselves against is the Golden Horde, you know, one of the one of the great sort of like uh, uh, Mongol Khanates. Who were, who were they? So the Golden Horde were one of the, I mean, the, the, the term they used was the Ulus in a sense, but they were one of the four great sort of Mongol Khanates. So you had the Mongol Khanate based on China, one on Iran, and then there were two more nomadic ones, the Jakadai Khanate, which was basically the Central Asia as we know it. And then Golden Horde was the, the Khanate that essentially, 
you know, ran Russia effectively. I mean, in the Crimea and this sort of area and where the Tartars are basically descended from. And they actually, and then, because I, I got rather confused trying mm. to learn about the kingdom of Sibyl, which is Yes, I know you sort of threw that in. Yeah. But you have this kind of border, don't you, between the steppes and the forests. That's right. Somewhere there. But but the Russian expansion, it's quite interesting because we always talk in the United States, you know, the, the, the expansion, you know, the, the drive of America westwards, you know, westward ho type thing. But actually something equivalent was going on in Russia was they were going east and they were basically also in a sense, um, you know, what the Russians would call their sort of civilizing mission, I suppose, going eastwards, but also really for their own perspective, a matter of security, actually. I mean, for, for them, the great threat always came from these sort of Eurasian steppes and the Mongols are obviously a very ter- terrifying threat for them. So the argument was essentially, as you said, you know, in the 16th and 17th centuries, but then really also in the 18th and 19th, they sort of finish it all off, this sort of gradual march eastwards, not only in terms of gaining control of these territories, Cyber, in other words, heading to the, obviously, the Pacific Ocean, but also settling it, if I can put it that way. Do you know what I mean? I mean, um, basically, I, I think a better word, pacifying it. And I use that word pacifying in a sort of a... Um, uh, it's almost like a euphemism, if you can get my drift. Yeah, I mean, uh, they were basically suppressing and controlling the the various individual Khanates that had emerged on the back of the Golden Horde and obviously the Jagadai Khanate. And I mean, later on, I mean, we can come to that, you know, when you have the British in India, that's where you get this origins of the great game because of the clashes in these, these areas. But it's very interesting, I think, for us, and I think a lot of writers have put this, is that the way Russia sees itself, it's 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 sort of got this... You know, it looks both ways, doesn't it? It's sort of looking to the West, and Peter the Great emblem uh, is emblematic of that, wanting to pick up on the West. But there's something also, I suppose, you know, deeply Asian about its its sort of construct, which, which Russians themselves admit. I mean, this is one of the interesting things, is they sort of say that one of the reasons that we have a sort of a natural sovereignty, if you will, over, you know, these parts of Asia is because we we are Asian. You know, we are part Asian. We understand them. And this, again, is the other thing. And I've talked to Russian intellectuals and academics about this. They say, we're not colonizing these areas because we are. these. Do you know what I mean? It's not like we're not Europeans coming here to do that. So they, they in a sense, it is, you know, it is, I have to say, uh, cakeism, actually. I mean, you know, it's an element of they want to be, on the one hand, very European. On the other hand, they say, ah, but you know, this is our natural habitat in a way. So the reason this is confusing to a lay person mm. is that there are two very different narratives. And one is... Yeah. The Slavic soul, and 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 you can tell actually that the population density is is fascinating for me because because mm. Russia is one of the most sparsely populated countries in the world. That's right. Um, in part because large parts of it are uninhabitable, so it has a population density of about eight point four people per square kilometer. You remember I did this on Kazakhstan actually. That's right. Yeah, are, yeah. I think there's fewer in Kazakhstan, but I think to compare, and I can't remember exactly, but it's something like two hundred and something per square kilometer in the UK. So so it's huge differences but and most of those people are in the west and in the cities so moscow has a population of of 10 million for example st petersburg 5 million mm-hmm. the next largest city is novosibirsk with one and a half million yekaterinburg 1.3 million and not really very much else i mean all the other cities that's also interesting isn't it? the small. density is quite the yeah. density is small the size of the cities is small and actually population projections in russia are, are difficult but but actually the population is is shrinking and it's yeah. shrinking a lot across these least populated areas which which is the so i've gone off on a slight tangent there ali because your point was that they say well we are we are the asian 
bit as well. And I've been watching, trying but to... But it is, I mean, it is important. In fact, I was going to ask you actually that, you know, about the population density, because basically the concentration of population is in, is in, Russia, is in European Russia, isn't it? Yes, but yeah. then these other really interesting things are happening. One of the things that people are trying to analyse the ethnic breakup or breakdown uh, of yeah. of the soldiers in the Russian army currently ah, involved yeah. in the fighting in Ukraine. Ukraine yeah. And what that appears to be showing, and it's so hard to tell, is that there are very few coming from you know nice European. city yeah. Moscow places. They're coming either from the Caucasus or from these very poor very rural territories somewhere sort of east of Lake Baikal in, in Siberia. So I've been looking a little bit into the Republic of Buryatia, wow. for example, which is part of the Russian Far East, which is a big chunk in the east that goes out to the Pacific. But it's right down on the border with Mongolia. And it's people who live there. I mean, there's a mix of Russians, so Slavic Russians, and indigenous Buryat Mongolians who are Buddhist. And there have been a disproportionate number of Buryati soldiers, young private soldiers, killed in Ukraine. And one of the questions is, why is that? Why are they going to fight in Ukraine? Why are so many of them in the junior ranks of the Russian army? And the explanation appears to be, well, it's it's poor rural area. The opportunities for young people are few, and joining the army is is a way to get out and a way to make money for your family and all the rest of it. And one of the problems then is that they're going. They're the most junior people. They're dying in Ukraine, and then people are showing them. And of course, they they are ethnically Mongolian, so they look different. They look that's different interesting. to yeah. Western Russians. Yeah, that's interesting. And there's a group of Buryati activists who've launched a campaign called Buryats Against the War, because what they're saying, and a lot of them living overseas, but they they are campaigning basically to say, um, there's one of them, a, a wonderful, um, she's a Californian quantum computer scientist wow. called Maria Vyushkova, who said, this war is like a vampire. It sucks the young blood out of Buryatia. And of course, this is a part of Russia that most people have no Never heard idea it, yeah. about yeah. what it is. But it links back, the reason I've gone off on this massive tangent is because it links back exactly to the story you're talking about, which is the legacy of the Mongol horde yeah. and the fact that this all this territory was incorporated into Russia and is Russia and they're mm. fighting for Russia, but they they are not, they're still perceived as not looking Russian in a way, and, and how Russia sort of squares its identity is something quite interesting for me. You're right. I mean, it is interesting in terms of what constitutes a Russian, you know, and I mean, whether, you know, they say, as you say, this sort of Slavic European, you know, there's sort of an ethnic Russian or being Russian is actually, you know, a way of life. You know, I remember talking to a number of academics who came to, we were talking about Orientalism, you know, they, they all get very interested in Orientalism and colonialism. And I would say to them, so how do you see Imperial Russian expansion into Central Asia and the Caucasus? And they, they wouldn't see it as expansion. They said, oh, you know, we, we came there to liberate. And I, I'd say, well, I mean, yes, I'm sure many people thought, you know, they were going to liberate peoples. But did the subject people think that? It's clear they didn't, by the way. I mean, if you look at the history, it's a conquest. It's not a liberation at all in that standard view. One of the things I find quite interesting about Russia in that sense is they were newcomers. They were new kids on the block in terms of the sort of Western European 
what we could loosely call the Enlightenment, and they adopted these ideas. And as new kids on the block, they were obviously more zealous than everyone else, and they had this mission to go and sort of sell this. And I think, you know, one of the things that's quite interesting about their expansion into these areas is they definitely did believe, actually, they were doing something, you know, they, they were doing good. And you see this under communism too. I mean, communism for them is... I suppose for them, the end of history. I mean, this is where we end up and therefore we've got to go and sort of, you know, bring these people up to speed and educate them and so on and so forth. And I suppose, I mean, one of the interesting things is being a Russian in an ethnic sense and being a Russian in an ideological sense. And by that, in a sense, some form of European, some form of European, I suppose, ideas. Uh, became synonymous. I doubt the peoples and the peoples you're talking about, who, what are they called again? The Buryat. Buryat yes. and, the, and the others, you know, I don't think they basically, it'd be interesting, well, I mean, I suppose with the collapse of the Soviet Union, you you realise that actually a lot of these identities have sort of re-emerged. Although, I mean, paradoxically, of course, these territories that have emerged were all products of Imperial Russia and, and, the, and the Soviet Union. These are sort of like, almost like new nations, aren't they, in many ways? Which ones? The, 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 the Central yeah. Asian sort of, you know, these new Central Asian states. I mean, I don't think prior to this it would have been, you know, sort of the Uzbeks were obviously a people and whatever, but, you know, a defined territorial Uzbekistan probably didn't exist until the Russians decided to come and provide it with some sort of district boundaries, I suppose. Well, of course, I mean, you'll probably know more about this than I do, but Turkmenistan, for example, mm. was taken by Imperial Russia yeah. in eighteen. 18- 20 something yeah yeah quite it's slightly later it's the mid 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 19th century and yeah. what they're doing obviously is 1869 i'm yeah, so sorry yes seizing these territories and of course yeah. these are all territories that were contested with the iranians to, mm. to some extent because the persian sort of imperium even though the iranians had no mm. control over these areas and they were rather lawless so that you know they didn't pay homage to any imperial power so some people actually thought that what the Russians were doing were, was a good thing, you see, because they were bringing these sort of rather lawless. Because, I mean, there's a lot of stuff going on in Central Asia. I mean, one of the things that the, the Iranians got very uh, annoyed about, obviously, was uh, slave raiding. You know, so a lot of these Central Asian Khanates would sort of pile into northern Iran and take these Persians as slaves. And they'd complain, actually. They'd complain to the British, you know, what, you know you're know, you against slavery. Why don't you sort this out? And this is what it's from sort of mid-19th century. Yeah, yeah, exactly absolutely. Where... There's an account, you know, where this Persian prince sort of says to the, the British minister, you know, why don't you do something about this? Of course, the British would say, well, there's absolutely nothing we can do about it. But actually, the Russians coming south is not a bad thing. I mean, they're sort of like controlling that, although obviously there were other issues that arose from it because the last thing they wanted were the Russians right on their border. Um, and there were some brutal battles. I think there's this yes, famous general called yes. Mikhail Skobolev, who the white general... Who they're he, praising now, aren't they? Yes, and he wore a white uniform and rode a white horse. And, um, you know, he's sort of responsible, I think, for quite a lot of these imperial Russian conquests, which I think were were bloody battles. Mm. One of the things that when you were talking about that expansion period, of course, that coincides almost exactly with the period of expansion of Western European empires. But those were mostly kind of overseas. So the British Empire... They were sea... Yeah, they were, they, they were naval... They were, they were yeah, they were seaborne empires, as they call them. Right and and Russia, Russia sort of, A, didn't really have a sea, but B, didn't need a sea because it could just take the entire continent, which is... Basically what it did. did. So, so in a way, that the, there was a parallel movement going on and, uh, of empire building. That's what we're talking about, isn't it? There is. And in a way that's so interesting, Russia's still got most of its empire. Well, that's it. And that's the striking thing. Because it isn't a seaborne empire, it's able basically to say that this is not an empire. 
it's actually just Russia. I mean, we call yeah. it the Russian Federation now. Yeah. But it's a bit like saying if there was no sea, if there was no Atlantic Ocean between Britain and Canada, would Canada be a separate country or would it be yeah. in court? Do you see what I mean? It was quite interesting. I mean, the other thing in your map, which I mean, you didn't talk about, of course, they didn't stop at the sea. They went straight across the Bering Straits and into Alaska, what we have now is Alaska. So what's interesting is that the Russian Empire in that sense, until until I think the mid-19th century, actually also possessed Alaska. And, and can you imagine if the Russians had retained control of Alaska? I mean, they would have been, you know, American Russia. I mean, it would be quite quite a striking thing. So let's talk about Alaska because I've yeah. been look, looking into this a little yeah. bit. Because I, I, This is one of the I, curiosities of history, isn't it, really, which we're about to talk so about. So many curiosities of history. But the European discovery of Alaska came in 1741. Wow. When you had this Russian expedition huh. led by Danish navigator. Right. Vitus Bering, uh-huh. and it was basically about hunting, wasn't it? It was about fur trapping yeah. and things like. Is that that's right. so? It was economic drive. It is, yeah. It in is, the yeah. same way that you had in Canada and other places, you know, British Imperial East India Company with this economic drive. So, so you had this sort of push there, and they established this um, Russian American company, which got monopoly over Alaska, and they extended Russian trade over the next sort of sixty years down the west coast of North America and founded a settlement actually in North California uh, in Bodega Bay, uh, which was then contested Blimey. by British and American trading vessels. So, so you had almost kind of 100 years of active Russian activity on the west coast. And when you think of the, the distances continent. involved, it's extraordinary, isn't it? And then, what, <laughs> and then basically, Ali, because this is a bit is that you know about, so, so then basically... Russian interest in Alaska declined and you had the Crimean War in the 1850s, which caused Russia nearly to be bankrupt. And so it started to think, well, do we really need Alaska? Is that what happened? Well, basically, and it's also, you know, it's one of those great quirks of history, actually, which is a little bit like British and and French rivalry over Canada. So that, you know, after the Seven Years' War, you have this idea of these countries were basically swapping conquests around. You know, there was an option, actually, at the time the British were going to return Canada to France. But the French said, no, no, we'll quit Guadeloupe instead. You know, the sugar plantation, you know, there's nothing in Canada. It's all it's all furs. And I think also, you know, with the Russians in Alaska, they thought, well, this is all a bit distant. And it it actually costs us more to sort of keep it. So they were looking, actually, to find a, a way to actually make some money out of Alaska and sort of get it, get rid of it. And interestingly, one of the great quirks and one of the great what ifs is is actually they initially approached the uh, Principality of Liechtenstein, uh, which can you imagine? You know, the Principality of Liechtenstein, small landlord, small landlord country in Western Europe, in and basically said to the hereditary prince, say, you know, would you like it? You know, would you want to buy it off us? Why did he want it? Well, he didn't. I mean, he. I mean, the point is, he sort of said, well, that's very interesting. But what the hell are we going to do with Alaska? You know, I mean, you know, principally because, as you pointed out, you know, Liechtenstein is landlocked. So how the hell would they get there? You know, mind you, it's a, it is a great sort of what if of history. You know, had the Liechtenstein decided to take Alaska? I mean, given now it's got oil and all this sort of thing. I mean, doing rather okay, that's well. That's a whole other podcast. That is a whole other podcast. So basically, at the end of the day, obviously that isn't what happens, and of course it's sold. Um, it's sold to the Americans. And the, Americans, the United States and yeah. the Americans, as I understand it. So that was on. Um, on March the 30th, 1867, Secretary of State William H. Seward yeah. signed a treaty with Russia for the purchase of Alaska for $7.2 million, which is quite a lot. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, although maybe actually a bargain in retrospect, but it was ridiculed in Congress at the time. <laughs> I'm sure, actually. And, um, <laughs> and known as President Andrew Johnson's polar bear garden. <laughs> 
uh, and it got ratified but by the Senate. The they never, so they vote. never, he never thought. I mean, the interesting thing is they never thought about offering it to Canada or the British, I suppose. But then I suppose that would have been well, they too just risky. Had the Crimean War, yeah, they? So yeah, they you're right. So they weren't going to do it. Yeah, they, they weren't on our side particularly. So they basically as, thought indeed, that the United States are, would benefit. Um, and then, but but while we're talking about the Pacific, Ali, I was interested to learn, as I have learnt recently, that the Imperial Russian Navy established in 1731 the um, the Pacific Fleet. Wow, that is so early. again, that's I mean, much that's, earlier than I thought. That's yeah. really early, and it was known as the Okhotsk Military Flotilla. I can't pronounce that exactly, right. and the Siberian Military Flotilla, and it was formed to defend Russian interests in the Russian Far East region along the Pacific coast, which of course at that time was particularly against Imperial Japan. Right. Where you've still got this sort of tensions up there. So that's a reminder for us, if one were needed, that that actually again it Russia's not just European. No, no, not at all. A Pacific fleet, as the Americans have a Pacific fleet, and they've got a significant Pacific seaboard which is still there with you know the fleet in, in Vladivostok. Yeah. but i suppose you know i mean if you do, do the comparison with the united states i mean the united states is a pacific power but would still be considered i suppose it, it it's its whole world view is quite european if i can or western let's put it that way and i think you know obviously the russians what's interesting about the russians is not so much that they are in a territorial way a, an asian power which they clearly are but it's also how they think. And I think this is what interests, um, well, certainly interests us, I think, yep. is this idea of, you know, are the Russians themselves really people who think that they stand sort of Janus-like East and West, that they incorporate both what you would call Eastern and Western characteristics? If you can define it in such a way, I mean, that's the other interesting thing. Can you distinguish between Eastern and Western characteristics in that sense? I think there are uh, certain value systems that are that are certainly different. And distinctive as a product of particular developments in the West in the 18th century, which you know Peter the Great was very anxious to adopt. But Peter the Great, for me, is a classic figure in this respect. I mean, um, because you know he's seen as one of the first great enlightened despots. I think Voltaire praises him and says, you know, this is a man. He's a lawgiver. I mean, you have to be an enlightened despot. You have to be a lawgiver. But on the other hand, he betrayed a lot of characteristics that could be easily uh, put in the sort of the um, you know without any hint of controversy here, um, sort of oriental despotism. He did a lot of head chopping off. Yes. I mean, not only that, Personally. his relationship with his son was extremely bad, which is like a lot of these potentates, you know, and he ends up sort of torturing him, I think, and he killed him. But also, you know, in the establishment of St. Petersburg, I mean, how many people died basically in the building of St. Petersburg? I mean, these are, you could say, massive public works, but he's not, you know, there's only there's only so much that he's absorbed, in a sense, from his, his tours in the West. I mean, he's in some ways, he's He's more similar to Ivan the Terrible, isn't he? It's quite interesting. And if you compare him to sort of the potentates in Persia, Iran, Stroke, or China, or or even in Mughal India and whatever, there are characteristics which I find, you know, for me, it's very interesting that in Western histories, we see him as a very quintessential European leader. I mean, he's part of that European fabric. On the other hand, I don't see him as that much different, actually, from some of these rather more despotic shards, if I can put it that way. And this brings us to the modern parallel, which you, Ali, have, have been writing about recently, which is the link essentially between President Putin's Russia, mm, mm. and we're not saying President Putin is like a czar, but, no, but, but, but I think he'd like that to be. sort of behaviour, and modern day Iran, and the, con- 
the continuity or the, the sort of complexity of the relationship between mm. Russia and Iran, which no longer has a border, but, mm. but both countries define themselves almost in opposition to the West. That's right. It's another reason why it's difficult to say that Russia is a Western country or a European country, because it sets itself at odds with the West most of the time. So could you just very briefly mm. talk through from uh, 1828, the Treaty of... Turkmenchai. Yeah. What was that? So the Treaty of Turkmenchai was the result of the Second Russo-Persian War, yeah. um, which I mean, basically was a very short, sharp war on the back of the First Russo-Persian War, which resulted in the loss of the Russian conquest of Iran's or Caucasian territories. And it marked a significant sort of setback for Iran as, quote, a great power. And, um, you know, the, the really definitive march of Russia southwards. And of course, it's really rankled with the Iranians. I mean, that's what's quite interesting. I mean, we talk about for the Iranians, there's all this sort of preoccupation with perfidious Albion and the British. But actually, in terms of territorial uh, aggrandizement, the Russians have always been a much more clear competitor, shall we say. I mean, really from the 17th century and otherwards. So the Russians were always seen as that sort of, if you look at earlier accounts uh, of of the Muscovite ambassadors, um, the the Persians were very dismissive of the Russians. They thought they were peasants and backward and this sort of thing. So it really galled here were the Russians, you know, newly empowered, newly European, newly European, and sort of performing that new role. And I think throughout the 19th century, I mean, there's been this sort of like a development of a perception of Russia as a sort of an imperial predator. And I don't think it's an unjustified one, I have to say, but that's that's the way it is. And then recently, you know, more recently with the Islamic Revolution in Iran in 1979, and Iran's essentially turn away from the West in its anti-Western ideology, what's been quite striking since the fall of the Berlin Wall and the collapse of the Soviet Union is the way Russia has also, as I said in that article, I think, you know, it's Russia's turn east. So whereas, interestingly enough, you know, uh, we know from people like Fiona Hill and others that Putin really admires Peter the Great. He thinks, you know, he's a great model of how it should be done. A great hero to the Russian people. But whereas Peter the Great's turn was West, and emphatically so, Putin's turn is East, and I would say emphatically so. And what he's done is tried to build, I suppose, a, an ideological, geopolitical alliance with China, Iran, um, to a lesser extent India, I suppose. But, uh, you know, there's this sort of idea that we are the Eurasian powers, and I think with an emphasis on the Asian, I have to say, that's the interesting thing. And if you look at some of the conspiracy theories that they're they're building up, it's Which, deeply as you know, I, um, I love a conspiracy yes. theory. And most of them are, most of them are true. Um, <laughs> certainly in my experience. Oh, really? Oh, dear. Yeah, well, Which talking, ones? I don't know. We're not just going to okay. just just throw conspiracy theories at, at our audience, but yeah. sometimes they Well, sometimes they, yeah, sometimes they know they do tell you so. They definitely tell you something about the psychology of it. Um, you know, I suppose his, I mean, one of the very striking ones, of course, is anglophobia. It's enormously yeah. anglophobic. Yeah. But of course, you know, the Russians have a tradition of that because they're great competitors in the 19th century with the British. Similarly um, with the Persians. That's right. And so they share that with Iran. And, and the, But um, I mean, I suppose the other interesting thing, of course, is in the two main you know, global conflicts of the 20th century, Russia and Britain were allies. So, I mean, that, that's also a bit of a paradox now, isn't it? Yes. And it was just, it's always your enemy's enemy. Probably, that's right. Um, comes up, doesn't it? But also, I'm just thinking what we're sort of seeing is alliances of like-minded countries mm. and we're also i'm i'm looking again at, at russia's that long southern border which is now a, a group of states that used to be part of the soviet union that's and now right. aren't and we did podcast a little while ago with Rath pantucci about that's right Kazakhstan. Great, one. great one and we talked a lot well i was asking questions which are 
part conspiracy theory, part my idea. Go on then. We, we were talking about what happened in Kazakhstan in January of this year, 2022, where there was a lot of unrest and disruption and a, a challenge uh, which ended up with the incumbent president, Tokayev, remaining in post, but supported by forces from the Collective Security Treaty Organization, right, yeah. CSTO, which was set up in the wake of the collapse of the Soviet Union to be a kind of Russian NATO yeah. thing. And the exact membership of it has, has altered slightly, but it currently has six members, which is Russia, Armenia, Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, Tajikistan, and Belarus. So this is a way that Russia is trying to sort of shore up its perimeter, the former Soviet states, which which are its perimeter, notably not Azerbaijan, Georgia, and Uzbekistan, um, who yeah, will have different reasons for not wanting to be in it. I mean, Georgia's reasons are clear. Georgia's currently, uh, you know, at war with Russia in, in a sort of, frozen sort of way. Azerbaijan, I think that's where you end up in this sort of enemy's enemy thing with with a, a sort of triumvirate of, of Russia, Iran and Turkey trying to vie for influence between Armenia and Azerbaijan, mm-hmm. don't you? Is that about, is it about territory or is it about economics, the fighting? I mean, the fighting between Armenia and Azerbaijan is definitely territory, and it's partly to do, obviously, with the fact that the the Soviet Union, you know, a bit like Crimea and Ukraine, you know, I mean, the way in which different bits of territory were sort of split apart and given to other territories. But I think also there is a, I think there's undoubtedly an economic angle because obviously the Caspian oil and this sort of thing and and, and pipeline routes. Um, But Russia and Iran are both supporting Armenia. But that's the thing. I mean, that's where I was going. So basically, I think a lot of it actually has to do with less territorial, less economic, and more just straight geopolitical and ideological sort of designs in the region. Because so Turkey's supporting Azerbaijan. Turk, we were basically, in the, and the Azerbaijanis played very much on their Turkic origins. Yeah. yeah? And much to the annoyance of the Iranians. Because they're Shia. Yeah. So it doesn't actually make that much sense. Yeah. No, I mean, well, it, it, dep- it depends what you're emphasising, you see. I mean, and this is the point. Now, the interesting thing with the Republic of Azerbaijan is in 1919, when these territories, you know, f- fell free from, you know, when the Russian Empire was collapsing and the Soviet Union had yet to fall, that, that territory wanted to adopt the name Azerbaijan, much against, I have to say, the desire of Iranian statesmen who said that you are not Azerbaijan. Azerbaijan is Iranian Azerbaijan. This territory is known as Shirvan. I mean, it had a number of other names. And what they suggested when they went, you know, the Paris Peace Conference, is they said, well, why don't you call it the Turkic Republic of the Caucasus or something like that, you know. But if you call it Azerbaijan, you're going to have decades of rather joyful irredentism, you know, against Iran and Azerbaijan, which is exactly what's happened, of course. I mean, this is the thing. So basically, that relationship's been sour from, from the very beginning. Yes. But also, you know, when you look at it, it is also a modus operandi of the Russians or the Soviet Union, whichever you want to look at it, which is what they do. And this is what the Iranian statesmen were bothered about. They said, what you do is you keep renaming areas and it's like you're renaming it northern so-and-so, whatever, with the view that, oh, you know, we'd quite like the southern bit too. I mean, it's basically a means by which redefining things you're basically providing an opportunity for for aggrandizement. Like they've done with North Ossetia and South Ossetia. Exactly, exactly. 
and also what we see with Ukraine and how they're sort of, you know, they, they claim it's sort of this sort of salami slicing, but it's quite cleverly done. And it, it, and it works on the basis that most people on the West, by the way, have no historical grounding in these areas at all and therefore don't understand where these things are coming from. Uh, so, you know, when we go back to this notion of Russia as an imperial predator, of course, the Russians themselves, as I was saying at the beginning of this podcast, sort of see themselves as sort of defending themselves against, you know, these Eurasian steppe hordes. But I think, you know, it's probably fair to say that from the 18th century onwards, they have used a sort of a very careful strategy of expansion, which has not always been specifically military. It's also been geopolitical, actually, in a very, very clear sense. And one that's slow, it's strategic. It's geostrategic, if I can put it that way, where they sort of just claim these territories. Now, of course, I mean, going back to your map, they sort of claim all these areas because there's all, lots of Russian ethnic Russians, you know, dotted around. So they sort of think these are all part of, um, you know, should come back to the Russian heartland. A little bit like, the, you know, the Germans in the 30s, it has to be said. So, you know, don't want to draw too many analogies. But it is, it's it's quite interesting how they've done it and how they've played it. And I think your example of the Ossetians as well is also very apposite. It's also interesting because, you know, suddenly you're making me think Russia is just behaving in an absolutely 19th century way. Yes, with, I, with I all think these, it is. Particularly with all the Central Asian countries as well. So, for example, Russia and Iran both want to see stability in the former Soviet republics in Central Asia, but not Western influence. So if you look, for example, at Tajikistan, I think Russia and Iran have both been interfering. To, both Tajikistan and Kyrgyzstan, in particularly, have been quite unstable over the last sort of twenty years. But there's quite a lot of Russian and Iranian interference in order to make sure that they don't end up leaning westwards. Mm. And and that I mean I know that we don't have time to do this properly. But if you look at why Russia invaded Afghanistan in 1979. One of the reasons was essentially the risk that it was going to end up turning westwards. Yeah. And they would rather invade than have that happen. I mean, they were reluctant, obviously, to, yeah. to go in and get embroiled. But I think that's absolutely right. It's also this, there's a sort of a, I mean, you, don't, you can't say inevitability, but there's a sort of a logic to it, isn't there? That they sort of, you know, there's this view that you've got to keep protecting your borders. You've got, in, in a sense, it, it's expansion as a form of defence, because if you don't intervene, you risk other territories closer to home uh, seeking to secede almost. And it's partly a lack of confidence, I suppose, in their domestic arrangements. That means that they've constantly be, got to be seen to be being successful on their margins, on their frontiers. And of course, with the failure in Afghanistan in 1988, you know, you know, the argument is that had a tremendous knock-on effect, obviously, on the demise of the Soviet Union itself, because yeah. it was a failure. I mean, it was a, it was seen as a failure. So, quite. I mean, I suppose the Russians would also say that, you know, they are, I suppose, European, but European doesn't mean Western, does it? So, you know, they're European as a particularly sort of, you know, you could even call it, a, you know, an 18th century, you know, autocratic European. It's enlightened despotism is what it's about. So they, they could do that. Although, you know, I haven't, I've, I've just heard a lot of them saying this sort of notion that we are half, half, you know, we're half, we've got one foot in Europe and one foot in Asia, and we are basically neither solely European nor Asian, we're, we're a mixture. And that's, in their view, what makes them so effective, you know, in terms of their uh, Asian dominions. Although, you know, history would suggest otherwise, actually. I mean, they haven't been that effective at all. Um, 
Well, there's, I'm going to move us on to yeah. very briefly because we are running out of time. Just to note, we might come back to, to yeah. discuss this we as have well to do in part more detail. Two. I want to do yeah. part yeah. fifteen of this. But <laughs> yeah. You have obviously there's a there's a very long border with Mongolia. Yeah, that's there right. are two borders with China, saying, and yeah. one of these is quite small. It's just a little fragment in between Kazakhstan and Mongolia. But the other one is over, long. yeah, over four thousand kilometers long and that follows the Amur River and it is apparently one of the most heavily or if not the most heavily fortified border in the world. Is it? And that's because obviously over a period of time there have been a lot of conflicts between Russia and China about exactly where the border should be. And that has been essentially put to bed or settled, but not really. So there are still kind of territories on each side that aren't quite where people think they should be. Um, there was a big Sino-Soviet border conflict in 1969, which lasted mm. seven months. Um, and that was the height of the, the Sino-Soviet split. The underlying issues weren't resolved. They were resolved in a 1991 Sino-Soviet border agreement. But, you know, there's still sort of bits where people aren't necessarily quite sure that that's going to stay there forever. One of the things that's happened is that the Chinese side of the border has developed in the way that China does. So you have large cities with populations of millions of people and they are industrializing and modernizing. The Russian side of the border hasn't changed at all. Hasn't changed at all. And so so (laughs) so that I think is going to be something that's really interesting to I mean it is four thousand kilometers worth of it, but it'd be really interesting to watch exactly as you're saying this this massive Russian hinterland is not getting the benefit of being part of Russia in the way that Moscow or St. Petersburg might. It's going to witness enormous economic growth on on the Chinese side. How the two countries, which are essentially allies, Mm. manage that, um, I'm not saying there's going to be a conflict, don't misunderstand me, but there is just striking disparity between the two. And then I just wanted to finish with a little nod to the Russian-North Korean border. Yes. Because it's fascinating. This is 17.3 kilometres long, plus another 22 kilometres of maritime border. It is the shortest of Russia's international borders. And the border between the Russian Empire and the Korean Kingdom, which was a tributary state of the Qing dynasty, the Q, uh, was established by the Convention of Peking in November 1860. So it goes back a long way. There's one crossing which is a train, uh, which is called the Friendship Bridge over the Two Men River. Uh, And you can go there on the train from Moscow, uh, Moscow, Pyongyang, direct. uh, Moscow, Pyongyang, that's a journey to Passenger train services over the Friendship Mm. Bridge. There's a direct Korean state railway car that goes from Moscow to Pyongyang. And and you can go on it. Uh, It is the longest direct one-seat ride passenger rail service in the world, 6,383 miles in total. So that's quite interesting. It's only used by Russian and North Korean citizens. It's not open to nationals of other countries. But in 2008, two intrepid Western tourists managed to enter North Korea from Russia by taking a train over the Friendship Bridge. So that's perhaps one for wow. the brave. By the way, on the Western side, did we miss you know, Norway? 
I'm so sorry we missed Norway. We're in Norway because that's and quite an important border, isn't it? To that border. Yeah. Um, so that so basically on the east and west, the fringes, North Korea, Norway, basically. I mean, Norway's also quite a short border, but the North Korean one is quite. There's something else. I, I have no idea there was a border with Norway. You're right, though, and I miss. I'm, that's terrible that I miss Norway. I feel we need to start the whole <laughs> no, discussion no. all over again. No. Um, I mean, that... the fact is, the Russia is so vast. I mean, we can't cover it. I mean, it, it, this is the thing: is that it's it is fascinating for me that the Russians can feel remotely paranoid. I mean, why would you feel paranoid when your country covers such a large part of the world's landmass? We're going to stop with that rhetorical question. Okay. We are out of time. Excellent. So, um, so why would you feel paranoid when your country is so big? Is the critical question for the next time. For the next time. Thank you, Ali. This is excellent. Great. Brilliant. See you next time.